Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. This is where we'd say aloha. You know why? It means hello and goodbye. And goodbye. Yeah, yeah. And you just got back from uh, beautiful Hawaii. I sure did. It was a lot of fun. What does a doctor, a psychologist do on vacation? So we kind of, we went to Maui and we sort of split it up between adventures Mm -hmm. and just relaxing. Uh, Ashley loves to just relax and, but she was a good sport and had a lot of fun with me on some adventures. We, we saw a a ton of whales. Now this is their breed or uh, birthing time. Okay. So there were a lot of whales and their babies out there. We Mm -hmm. went on a boat. So that was pretty fun. Hiked to the top of the volcano. That was cool. Now, if I remember correctly, uh, when you're on vacation, that's when you catch up on TV. You like to just to sit in the hotel I, room. I usually do. And I watch like the home decorating I, but shows. But we didn't this time. Okay. No, we we didn't spend much time in the hotel at all. We were out on the beach or we rented a Jeep and drove all around the island and we had a great time. Did you get some malasados? No, what's that? Oh, it's a it's a fried donut. Oh, oh malasados. Okay, yeah. I missed those. Oh yeah, it's I really definitely good. ate a lot of stuff that was delicious and not good for me, but I missed those. You know what? They don't drink a lot of milk in Hawaii because it's so expensive. It's like oh, nine dollars yeah. a gallon. I didn't over really there. see it around yeah. much. But I'm not a big milk. Drinker. You know the thing I loved about Hawaii because I've been there a couple of times with my family is that nobody's in a hurry. In Hawaii, like yeah. this, the, the be island like, time. Yeah, just go ahead of us. We're fine. We're, yeah, you know, we're, you yeah. know, in the states, everybody's trying to get out of the parking lot first. In Hawaii, right. like, ah, just yeah, go, go ahead. We're cool. I, I love that. Yeah, no, it was it was a nice change of pace. While you were uh, living up the good life in Hawaii, I was doing something uh, that some people would think was kind of dangerous. But maybe not. I was DJing a party for Budweiser. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds borderline, yeah. And I'm a recovering alcoholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was uh, it was a retirement party for somebody who was a higher up in Budweiser. Okay. Because uh, they have a big uh, distributing, distributing plant, plant in, up in Ogden. Yeah, right? and they've yep. got them all over the state. But these guys have been family friends of mine um, since I was a little kid. And uh, I worked for them during... Uh, summers off of college and uh my little brother still works for him and oh i didn't know you worked there too oh yeah just just it was my summer job okay and so i would be the guy that would help people take kegs into bars uh deliver cases to convenience stores Mm. or as they call them c stores the c stores yeah they're called c stores casey stores no convenience (laughs) oh convenience stores yeah the c stores (laughs) so we so you'd either get on that day put on the c store run Uh or the keg route or the grocery stores the whole picture's coming in a little clearer Yeah. yeah and then you would you'd be tasked with you know rotating beer so you could 
get the born on date earlier and that kind of stuff. But I'm digressing. But it was a party uh, for the higher up at uh, Wasatch Distributing. Okay. And uh, they said, hey, would you mind DJing it? And I was like, no, I'd be honored, as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, and while I'm up there DJing, a couple of people would come up and was like, is this tough? Is this hard? And I go, DJing? And they're like, no, <laughs> no. You weren't Man. doing a very good job that night. Well, this one lady, and, and, and this is a crazy story. She comes up to me and she goes, hey, we're going to have an intervention. And I'm like, oh, you heard my podcast. Who we, would need some help? Where are we going? They go, no, can you get some better music on? <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, ouch. I was like, Too much MC Hammer? Yeah. Too much. But I was like, you got to read the room. You know what I mean? There's some older people here. There's some younger people. You got to find that sweet spot. Yeah. What was what was the demographic sweet spot? BGs? <sighs> Bee Gees, Steve Miller Band. <laughs> oh, love the Steve little Miller CCR. Band. Yeah, so, okay. You know what I mean? All right. Uh, that that just seems that, to appe- that's sixties. Yeah. people in the retirement. Yeah, age, appeases yeah. everybody. But they got me thinking. You know, it was like is in all reality, it's not hard for me to be around alcohol. And and some people will be like, well, aren't you mad at Budweiser? They ruined your life. And I was like, well, technically Budweiser didn't ruin my life. I ruined my life. Right. You know what I mean? It, I, if that was the attitude you were right. holding on to. That would be kind of dangerous in your sobriety, I think, if you were blaming the the beer or the beer companies. Yeah, or and that's the one thing that really helped me out in my recovery is when I got sober and process stuff in recovery and looked back about all my decisions and you know there were some outside forces and there was most of it just me i mean i was the one constant in everything it's <laughs> yeah, a good way to look at it you yeah. know what i mean yeah. it was like i was the one constant so and and i believe in recovery you've got to take ownership that way that yes. you own your faults and you can own your successes and any behavior change starts with owning your part of it. So I don't have a problem DJing parties where alcohol is involved. I don't have a problem going to party where alcohol is involved. I know that alcohol and myself do not go well together. And I'm a much better person when I don't have any substances in my body. And I am living a much better life now than I ever imagined because I no longer do that. And and, and with that, that's enough for me. Let me ask you this, though. Yeah. Okay. If you can think of a time that you, I don't think you've had a, I think you've done an excellent job in your recovery, obviously, but I don't, would it be in a public place like that with a big party and lots of alcohol or would it be home alone? Which play, which venue would be more tempting? Do you think to, to, to have a relapse for you? Cause you're a very social guy. You love to party and have fun. You, you know, that was your reputation and I, it's still your personality, but and I know was, a lot of your problematic drinking happened at home. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast is so everybody knew where I was. You know what I mean? And held me accountable. Uh, you know, 18 years ago when I quit smoking, I announced it on TV. And they said, hey, if anybody sees me smoking in public, come up and punch me and I'll give you 100 bucks. Because, I, you know, because I... I, I <laughs> Did want, you really do that? Yeah, I no, wanted I to be held that. accountable. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and so, yeah. And so, I, I've... I've I've thought about this. I've thought about if I were to relapse, how would it probably go? Yeah. And, and 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 I know it wouldn't be in public. Well, just temptations. Yeah, I, no, I temptations. I, I have faith you're not going to relapse. No, I, but, but the tempting, like, where would be the setting that would feel like, oh, you know, just that temptation? A family tragedy. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, not being able to, I, I don't know. I can't, I, I don't want to even think about it, but I think that's where it would be most tempting, where I just want to escape. That makes R- sense. Right now, there's no no part of my life that I want to escape from. 
Yeah, they're, they're, that's, they're, they're, that's awesome. I'm living such a fulfilling life right now that I do not want to escape. And, and, and I want to be present for everything. Excellent. And so if it was something like that, I, you know, I wouldn't do it at home. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I, I think that's about the only way that I could see something happening. Yeah. And, and God forbid, I hope it never does. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that, that makes sense. And that actually makes a lot of sense for, you know, you're so close with your family and, and that, that means so much to you. I get that. Yeah. So yeah. Well, that's a good answer. So, I mean, it was, it, it, it the fact and, and I'll go back to this dumb meme. And when we started this podcast four years ago, I talked about him a lot. Uh, like my favorite is nothing changes if nothing changes, <laughs> which is stupid sounding, but so true. Yeah. Yeah. But the best one I ever described uh, recovery and addiction for me was I gave up everything for one thing. Now I just give up one thing and I get everything. Yeah. So true. And, 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 and to me, yeah. that's really what happened. Mm hmm. You know, I said at one point, and it's the saddest statement I've ever uttered in my life, is I fought harder to keep alcohol in my life than anything else. Mm. And now I fight harder for my sobriety because with that, I get everything else. You also don't really like to be told what to do. Hate it. Hate it. So have you ever hate it? Have you ever thought like, well, maybe I, I can handle Nope. Drinking. Because alcohol won't tell me what to do. I could handle having some drinks. I'll be fine. That was my plan for the last three years of my addiction. Yeah. Because there was a lot of people telling me that to, to, to sober. You were finally getting, people were coming out yeah, of it. And yeah, saying, hey, look, you. this is getting out of control. You've now lost a marriage. You've a job. lost a job. Um, you've lost respect. Uh, you've ruined yeah. events. And, I, and, and so... But that was my plan. As stupid as it sounds, that was my plan for the last three years of my addiction. I, I don't. I think. I mean, it's stupid in retrospect, couple. but we but yeah. we all do that with something. Yeah. Probably. I'll just have a couple. Um, I can do this. Uh, look, I've, I've I've gotten this far. I'm sure I can figure this out. There's just some thing that I'm missing. I just got to be able to say no. And the reality is, is once I get one beer in me, I do not have the power yeah. to say no. Like, I've had people go, do you think you could have one beer? I go, I, I don't know. I'm not going to try. Because I, I, I have well, too much you're, to, to You're risk. a go big, go home yeah. kind of guy. Why would I have yeah. one beer? Yeah. That's like having one M&M. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had one M&M now no. that you bring it up. <laughs> yeah, right? Come on. Yeah. I drink beer like Pringles. One is just not enough. <laughs> oh, Pringles. Man, that's another good example. <laughs> right? Yeah. Come on. All Before right. you know it, that whole can's gone. Yeah. Yep. Hey, we've got a wonderful show for you, and I'm so excited that you're back, Dr. Matt. Uh, in case you didn't know, I am $10,000 richer. Yeah? How, we we won the show. We, oh, yes. I, that's the, right. Survivalist. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You did. Yeah. And and uh, we, you guys talked about it while I was gone, it right? Was, it, it was an amazing experience yeah. and one that I will remember for the rest of my life. And hopefully my kids will, too. Oh, they, of course they will. I that's said, an amazing I said, thing. I said, hey, if they're going to do a winter season, will you go back? And everyone went, ah. <laughs> once is enough. Huh? Yeah, so we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Hey, we got an amazing show for you today. Uh, we've been trying to get this lovely lady on the show for at least two months. Her name is January Riggin. Uh, she's the author of Dark Side of the Moon Child. And she's the uh, founder of Soap to Hope, which is a 501c3. Did I say that right? Yes. And uh, you go out and do amazing stuff in our community. We're going to find out more about January. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985... 
a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is January Riggin. Uh, January, that's a unique name. It is a unique name. I was born on January 1st. Um, January My 30th. mom was lazy. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, what should we name this kid? Pretty, or lazy and mad. Yeah. Being born on the 1st. I like it. I like it. I, I love it, too. So tell me where the story of January begins. Oh, man. Uh, just because I'm on the... Recovery project. I, I'll let you guys know that, like, I have 16 years in recovery. Wow, and, nice. Um, That's yeah. amazing. 16 years is a lot. Uh, it is. Every once in a while, I'm like, I think I want to be the newcomer again. <laughs> <laughs> I want all the people to hype up on me. But you know what? There mm. is something to that. Uh, like, I remember when I saw people getting sober for the first time, and I would say, I'm kind of envious. And they go, right. why are you envious of me? Because I go, because the road you're about to go down is so wonderful if you let it be. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, like it, it, it's like watching a baby deer walk for the first time or a newborn figure out something. You're like, oh, you see that light in their eyes and you go, oh, wow, it's, everything is so magical. You know, recovery is magical, but when I was new, I struggled. I had so much trauma and anger and I was, my narrative that I told myself for so long is that I didn't belong here, that I wasn't worth this. I couldn't have a life that was worth living like the circumstances that were built against me my entire life have just proven that so I I didn't think recovery would work for me and so I never had any relapses right like I never had any relapses because I never wanted to get clean and so when recovery actually happened because I got into treatment and I had to start facing myself and see those like steps I struggled I was I was upset that like I that I didn't know how to manage this, I didn't know how to control this, that I needed something to numb who I was, I didn't like who I saw in the mirror, and all of those things came back that have happened to me, but now I didn't get to have a coping skill. And so I struggled probably my first couple of years, and I had to fight for every day. Like, it wasn't like I had a whole family support, I had money, I had, um, like, I literally had to catch a bus to get on another bus to get to another bus to even make it to a meeting. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it wasn't or to treatment or I had to get on assistance to even survive to get food that month because I still had such a poverty mentality and such an ad- 
criminal mentality, but a men, like an addiction mentality that like, I don't like what I have and I don't like who I am. So I want to take what's yours. Yeah. And so like I, ne- nothing was never enough, right? Like if people had, were eating at McDonald's or whatever it was, or if I walked by a restaurant, like I knew I couldn't afford that. And so like I struggled, I think my first year, like now that I think about it, it was probably the best, right? Like I had to fight for all those days uh-huh. and they had to matter for me. Because I would have probably tried to manipulate someone. Okay, before we get to that, because I, I love where you're going down this, but I think a lot of people would be interested to what got you to that point. So do you remember the first time you tried a substance or the first time you are introduced to alcohol? Well, you mentioned off air that your growing up situation was kind of unique in that you grew up on a Native American reservation, but you were a minority, not right. a Native American. No, I wasn't. And tell My, us yeah. a little bit about your family and where you grew up. So I come from a broken home. Uh, my dad's a Vietnam vet because when you said that I did like it triggers mm-hmm. and he he passed away when he was 54 um, poverty uh, lived in a trailer park my entire life moved to Indian reservation when my parents divorced because my grandma had land on there and my dad stayed on a trailer there um, my, I, my this divorce I only have one sibling and he's um, older and he's a severe alcoholic and I'm a severe drug addict and um and he went into the military too so alcoholism i have a lot of people in my family that struggle from alcoholism that went to the war in the military military and um came back with addiction too like started Mm -hmm. coping with heroin started coping with methamphetamine crack cocaine um and so that piece was normalized and being raised on an indian reservation alcoholism is prominent it's a rampant yeah it's rampant and um but my mom took me and my dad took my brother. So they split my sibling, the siblings. And, uh, and there was a lot of trauma there. There was a lot of, my mom was a partier. Um, my dad had a lot of health problems from the war and working heart conditions. Um, so he basically lived off disability. My mom tried to do everything she could working four or five jobs. But in that midst of a child being left alone, there was a lot of trauma that happened in there in those what houses. What was that like being separated from your brother? Uh, that was tr- that that was that was probably the hardest. Um, and what's crazy is, even though Todd is like four years older than me, like I was, w- he was protective over me because we mm-hmm. we lived in areas that were pretty. Like the trailer park was crazy. That you know, um, having a little sister, un- like unsafe. a brother over a little sister, like it's a different bond. Uh-huh. Where like he, so when we split, like it was like almost like losing a limb there. And he, he's the one that went to the reservation first. And then when my dad got me back from my mom, my mom literally dropped me off at a McDonald's and just said, "Hey, my your dad's coming to get you," and just left me there. And so then wow. I went and lived with my dad. And he tried his hardest. Like he tried to raise two kids on his own with the best he could. Um, up on this property, he tried to like give us, you know, camping or hunting or a four wheeler or a three wheeler. But even in that mentality with the stuff that was being built up as a secret, like, um, I have, I have, um, sexual assault as a child and, uh, mm. and, I wanted to protect my dad because he is military, right? Like my dad's very disciplined. You don't show emotion. You don't show that those things affect you. You don't show weakness. You don't show pain. Um, I'll backhand you. You will not, you know, it's not is or was. It is now, right? Like, um, and he was really hard on my brother that way too. Like, and so, you know, as like even a seven-year-old, we were out there like 
chopping wood. We were picking, like we were tough. Like you just couldn't have a weak mind. So any of that trauma that was already building, I couldn't express it anyways. So you just put you, it in a dark place? And yeah, you just put it in a dark place. Did you ever feel like you got any help or support for that? No, not for a long, a no, no. Not for till I got into recovery. Were in recovery. Yeah, until yeah. uh, I was 30. And you know, I think it's interesting and I don't, you know, it's a different mindset. Uh, you've used that term. It's a different generation. Like, you know, bad things happen to everybody, so just be tough. And I, I understand that. I, I, I think parents... Um, Probably tried their best. Oh, my, you know. both, both my, and now that but I look now at now that it. we know what trauma does and how it influences a person's growth, you know, I hope we're changing and accepting that, you know, understanding how to get help for people who've been assaulted or traumatized, especially as children is important. But you got to look back, uh, you know, it was a different time. It was a different era. And we say this in recovery all the time. We only know what we know. And right. you, you know what I mean? And, and, and that's all yeah. that, you know, those generations knew. And that's what I mean. I think a lot of p- parents, you know, we can't judge past generations by current mindsets. I don't think that's fair. Oh, no. um, but, you know, I'm getting this picture of here's a dad. He obviously wanted to provide experiences for you guys. Um, but he was, you know, dealing with his own trauma, PTSD, I'm sure. And, oh, yeah. and then his own alcoholism and those kinds of things. So and he's on his own. Yeah, it's interesting. My dad was a a severe alcoholic until I turned one. And when I turned one, he cold turkey. Oh, did he? My dad. Now, my other side of the family, their addiction ran. I mean, I just buried an uncle last my that was a Purple Heart hero three times that um, from alcoholism last year. So, like, there's certain sides, but he quit when I turned one, and I don't know what that trigger was. I don't know what hit stopped him. I don't know if it was having a little girl. I don't know if something traumatic happened in his life. I, I have no idea. I was one, right? But I was never, my dad was my, I have a tattoo on me that's a tree, and it's my dad, mm. right? Like, his property, his house, like, it never changed. My mom moved around, different men, different places. Like for him though, like I always knew even at my darkest times, I could go up that mountain and my dad would be home. He was planted Like he was sitting on his chair reading the Bible, right? Like I always knew that my dad was there until obviously I lost my dad when I was like 20. Mm. Um, And um, because he was stubborn, I think military men are pretty stubborn. They They don't want to go to the doctor. (laughs) They don't want to do anything. And, um, and by the time I lost him, I was, I I was already a full blown like meth addict at that time. Mm. Um, But they, they separated us. But the time when I went back there, I tried, like he tried. Like mm-hmm. he, he tried the best he could with what he had, and I tried to hold the secrets as best as I could with what I had. Did right? you ever tell your dad about? Uh, no, no. I, uh, but there was. I tried to tell him without voicing it. Like I had a severe suicide attempt mm. where I took all of my dad's pills because my dad had to take s- severe pills every day. Like he had five heart attacks before I was eighteen. They wow. had to do. Um, so I ended up taking all of his pills and he walked in the room and he rushed me in child protective service and tried, they had to try to get pump my stomach and, and, and I would go back and forth. My dad disliked my mom, pretty much hated her. Um, and when they divorced, you know, that type of divorce where it's like awful, arrogant, rude. When I would go back and forth, but my brother would never go see my mom. I would go back and forth to my mom's and I had Stockholm 
I would say, with mm-hmm. my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, even though horrific things happened to me while I while she was partying or while she was gone or whoever was in her house, or I got to have those little moments of, oh, maybe I'll get a beer. Oh, maybe they'll offer me a joint. Oh, maybe I'll sneak a line when they're all not looking. Right? As a child. You were yeah. thinking that as a child. So I, I wanted to be there to numb and build, like, and... I mean, and I live such a double life, right? I, neither one of my parents. My mom, I was angry. I would get angry. I mean, my, and my mom's my abuser. Like my, my mom was in some horrific relationships that, uh, for her to gain any kind of sense of control, she had to control something else, right? And, and you were the. Yeah. And I was, you know, I remember clearly like one time holding my mom down so bad for her to stop that like I left marks on her and then they, t- they took me in. Right. Like, uh, and yeah. when the therapist finally met with me and I shared what happened, right. Cause nobody asks you what happens to you, right. They think something's wrong with you. They think you're a delinquent. You think they're, you're defiant. You think you're, you're wild. And when I finally was like, what else am I supposed to do to get her to stop hitting me? Right. And the therapist actually yeah. finally right then and there called my mom in and was like, this is done. She's going to her dad's now. You were, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, like that little spitfire of anger got me to tell the truth one time, mm. but then I, that's a mistake sometimes, right? Like then all of a sudden. How did that tra- make you feel that you got taken from your mom then at that point? Uh, because it's, that was where I got to be wild and angry. It was a lot of, it was a lot of fear for me. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I think I do have Stockholm syndrome with my mom at the time. Like right now though, my mom, you couldn't tell me anything about my mom. My mom is my favorite human in the world. Like she's oh. a riot. She's fun. I spend as much time. She lives in O Town. Oh, bitty bitty O. <laughs> she, uh, she lives. I, you know. Can uh, I ask? Is she sober? Yeah, my mom. Yeah, she, uh, she would use, but she could go to work. Like she worked my entire life for three or four jobs. Oh, she could. Okay. Yeah, she was. She didn't have the like where addiction destroyed her and turned her into. So she this. was functional, but yeah. partied a lot. Yeah, and, yeah. And she liked to have fun. And it sounds like you've had a lot of therapy with her, but. Back to being a kid, I'm curious about this. So here you have this trauma in your life, Stockholm Syndrome, meaning that you're identifying with your captors or your abusers, right? And so you don't want to give up, you know, get them in trouble. So you you never kind of rat out to your dad what's going on over at your mom's. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, or even my dad, because my dad was, I mean, military, I mean, believe it or not, us kids raised by military, I mean, I'm 45, that like... We got our ass beat. Yes. Like nowadays people go to corporal punishment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like yeah. or less. I mean, but like I, you know, I was a kid that went to school all the time with bruises or malnutrition. Like we were poor too. Like yeah. I started stealing at a really young age. And nowadays people are like, why? Like nobody missed the signs. Why would a like eight year old be going into a grocery store trying to steal food? It's right. not because they're delinquent, because they're hungry. They're hungry, yeah. They're That's hungry. very, very sad. Isn't they, you it? know yeah. what I mean? It's not... Well, and I, I hope that people like myself, psychologists, social workers, uh, healthcare professionals, that we've also changed. Like, parenting has improved, I think, over the decades and generations, but hopefully we see those signs now, and we don't assume delinquency. In fact, I don't even really care for that term. It, to me, it's awful. more of a, a description of a behavior, but it's not a it's not an understanding of the person, right? Right. And so, so you're absolutely right. What When we have an eight-year-old coming in to steal at a grocery store, we need to find out what the bigger problem is. But for you as a young child, do you remember how 
young you were the first time you uh, used anything, drank, oh, or probably I probably tried. My brother was drank. I probably like ten, like ten. I probably, my brother tried to yeah. get me to take a swig of Everclear. And you probably <laughs> Everclear at ten. Wow. Yeah. And I wow. puked all over my grandma's like. But I, I, I wonder, were you? Did you want to? Was it curiosity? Or was it numbing? You know? Numbing, yeah. It was. I mean, I mean, there is some a little bit of me trying to. I'm the little sister of a brother, and I have a brother that was actually kind of the cool kid. Like he was really good in sports, and I, I was really good. Like or my my whole, my you dad was to be like your brother, yeah, yeah. Like, and I don't really know if it w- what it was, but how about I, identifying with your mom? Like, were you trying to make um, no, none of that? With her, that um, no? I, I mean, really, in reality, like that, like it feels like that time was kind of minute compared to what was brewing, right? Like mm. I, like I, at that point, I became the perfect ingredient for a predator, right? Like I, I mean, I started using methamphetamine, weed, drinking, probably full blown. Like eleven, twelve, right? So, like me wow. having trauma, being raised, so you being were able, just like barely into sixth grade. Yeah, like I, I ended up being a perfect ingredient for predators. Where like older, I ended up being attracted to older men, probably from my sexual abuse, right? Like in normalizing that, I, I ended up. Um, getting trafficked on a prop on a big biker gang tr- uh, property for like six years in my entire life, um, and. And that was normalized. Like I needed that property so you, to go a, pick up that substance where I learned how to make methamphetamine. I knew how to be, use methamphetamine. I used, knew how to mule those drugs for that biker gang. I knew how to sell very well at a really young age. I knew where I, I, I was, I was a full blown adult at like 12. Like I knew what I was doing. But so, you were trafficked. Yeah, as sex trafficked. Yeah. And so that, that was But that started. wasn't a word they used back then either. No, that had barely it, it, hit mainstream maybe over the past 10 years. But right. back then, that was not. That was an exchange because they were giving me drugs. I needed that drug. I needed safety. So as young as 12, 13 years old, you yeah. were in that biker gang life. Yeah, I was already in that scene of... And, just, and actually, I write about it in here, but one of the hugest things is... The property gave me power, right? It let us teens go on there and have bonfires, have cakes, have booze, have lines, have sex, be angry. We could fight. We could yell. Like at some point, it was home. So nobody held us hostage. I wasn't private property. Yeah, I wasn't held hostage, but it was home because I needed what they had and they needed me. Mm -hmm. So um, at some point, you normalize that too. Uh, Did it? Did it feel? And I, because I say this because I think a lot of teenagers, it felt like you had something important going on, like you were an important part of the group. Oh, yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And plus, too, I think kids that come from that background were looking for maternal, right? Mm -hmm. And so if there's, you know, if, you know, I, I had a female trafficker. She she always looked for me. She would brush my hair. She would feed me. She would bathe me. She would uh, make sure I was okay. She made sure I had enough drugs. She would tell me that I was the most important. That like she never left that property unless she was coming to find me and make sure I was okay. Right. And so at some point there is a maternal toxic blonde going that there's no one could tell me different about her and i was already sexually distorted that like giving up sex was just part of the normalization right i had no idea that this was like trafficking or exploitation or being someone 
like I, that wasn't the word. Did right? you feel like um, sex was your currency or it was your worth? I mean, or- oh yeah. Well, and I had a lot. Like I was a kid that could mule drugs for them too, right? Like I was their currency all the way around. Right? I went and sold into these small rural towns. I mean, obviously that area, Durango, Ignacio, like all those little areas. Like, what else is there to do in small towns, right? And so I became currency. I became a valuable to them, and they became value to me. So I really thought of it like they were my street mom. I thought it was my street mom, and I thought I was a street kid. And um, what happened is I the system failed me, right? Like this, I went in twice before I was 16 to an abortion clinic, didn't have to have a parent sign. I could walk in there with cash. Nobody asked me what happened really? to me. Really? Wow. Okay. And nobody asked me anything, right? No, nobody, nobody I could go. I walked in there. I, nope. I walked in there therapy. a teenager with money and I literally walked out of there different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh do you yeah, think at that age you would have accepted help, though? Because you're kind of painting. I mean, it's the you, you've used the term Stockholm syndrome, normalization. Like as a child and a, and a young person, we start to our experiences create what seems normal and typical to us. Oh yeah, that, right? I don't and know so if I would have. I think. That I mean, I, I at mean, that, that age you probably felt like. Uh, why you know i don't want i where would i go what would i do like these are the only people i know like you said a street mom right there, there was this twisted and unhealthy connection but it was a connection and and i needed that connection can i ask you a weird question uh, like the six years you spent off and on yeah off and on like and i don't know if you can even answer this do you feel like you were winning life or do you feel like you were just surviving life? Does that make sense? Well, I, no sense in a way winning. I mean, but I get what you're saying because there, there, there's some power that comes along with that, right? Like I actually ended up being a kid that groomed and targeted and brought other kids because there was – I got, you got to be wild there. You got drugs, you got freedom, you got this, you got to, older people were accepting you. And so there is some winning there, right? We're like, and, and like I said, none of that targeting, grooming, recruiting were none of those words back then. We were all just kids just needing a place to go, right? And so owning that story and it coming out not about six years ago, right? Like I, like that's a story that you block pretty hard, right? Um, that you uh, there, you look back now. There was actually more survival, right? But there is when as a teen, why not? Why would you not be like, dude? I got a pocket full of dope, and you need what I want, and people are buying it from me. Yeah, there's some winning, right? There's mm-hmm. a, there's some power, there's some control, and so. Um, but that power and control, I mean, landed me. I did. I was one of the first few kids that ever I went to prison at 16 right I was one of the first kids to ever do this uh, scared straight program and I'm in Colorado and but what's crazy is they were so unmanaged at that time they had no idea about scared straight they just threw you in there they thought you were gonna be punked by some inmates and you're never gonna go back right there was no trauma therapy going on like if you're taking a 16 year old at to prison like there needs, there's yeah. a problem going so, so, on. So, so do you know the research on that program? I know a little bit. I know it didn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it didn't work for anybody. So what they found was is that the kids that went there, 
uh, tended to identify with the inmates. That's right. And they were like, oh, these guys are cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are my and people. It, yeah. And so if you were bad enough to get into the Scared Straight program, then your heroes weren't school teachers. Your heroes were drug dealers. That's exactly and what happened. And so when you went to prison, they identified with, with those folks and actually were more likely to choose a life of crime. So that you, was me. So right after. Yeah. At 16, how, how much time did you do in prison? So I started, that's where the start of the in and out. And I uh, went back in. I've, they tried me. I got tried as an adult. Did you get busted for muling or? Uh, there sales? was a lot. Let one, well, I robbed a house, thought the lady was gone. Um, she wasn't. She ended up having a heart attack. Mm. And they tried to like say it was, uh, they, if she would have died, they probably would have got me for attempted murder. But she was scared, right? And she had no idea that it was like a 14 year old, like a young kid. She thought it was a grown ass man trying to break into her house and maybe even sexually assault her or hurt her. Right, right. So her panic, right. Yeah, yeah, she was terrified. <laughs> but that just started the ripple effect of just criminal behavior for me and being in the system. So any charges after that just automatically were all, like, you're bad. You're going to, not they, one they, person. Compound over no, and over. one person Nobody, thought I needed help. Yeah, nobody was like, why is this kid breaking into punitive. this house? Oh, yeah. And even, I mean, obviously I was getting, I got a felony. I started, you know, burglary, then manufacturing methamphetamine, having possession, fraud, um, counterfeit checks, like everything that I could get my hands on to not be myself and belong somewhere else, I did. Tell me about that, to not be myself. What do you mean by that? Well, obviously, I didn't want to be the weak, wounded little girl that was molested as a kid, right? Or constantly, consensually raped, right? I didn't want to associate with that at all. So if the criminal behavior, the power would help me disassociate from that one, I ran with that criminal mentality to too far <laughs> too far <laughs> but, but i mean that's so that's so important that that is what at that age our adolescence we're looking for our identity for our power where where do i fit in who am i how can i set myself apart you know i've got to feel important i've got to be important that's really the drive of our personality development when we're adolescents and the reality is if you can't find it uh you know in a socially acceptable way uh sometimes you'll find it in uh uh, criminal, criminal ways, right? Oh yeah. You want to know what, what's crazy about my story is that I live. Oh, such hey, I'm going to stop you there because there's a lot that's crazy <laughs> about your story. <laughs> you, know, you know what's crazy? You just talked about uh, you know horrific well, stuff going on. Well, I think this one is probably the most craziest because is the double life. Like that was all like nightlife. There was mm. a time that I shifted and went into that right, but during the day, like one, I loved my dad. So during the day, I couldn't let anybody see that girl because if someone told my, like if my. You didn't want your dad to find out. No, or right. shame, right? right like right. one. You didn't want to disappoint him. But so I went to school. Oh, okay. I went, I, I made every sport. I made varsity. So you were like, excelling I, like, on both sides of the page. I Probably not. I mean, I probably made D's and C's, but I, I went to these areas yeah. to protect my dad. Mm-hmm. Real, probably at the end of the day was it you and not to protect myself but to protect heart, my d- heartbreak to well, protect yeah. your dad and probably to protect your story a little bit and well to, yeah because if something comes out and your dad's like well she's going to school she's on all the teams uh this right. can't be true right and i 
I needed that double life. I needed this over here and I couldn't, I, and I wasn't a voice. I tell people and it's in this book and it says it in the back. I will tell you right now, my first trafficker is not a human. It is silence. Globally, silence is the number one trafficker. Interesting. I, but I learned how to be silent at six. So everything else after that, always a secret. Yeah. And so I never was a voice, but I knew action. I knew certain things that would protect this side of the story. So, or like I weighed like this much or I had bruises or I would, I was wearing long sleeves because I was already shooting up dope. I, I played that role so well that I don't even know what narrative was true anymore. Right. Like I didn't even know who I had no clue who, what, where, where. Yeah. That identity wasn't solidly but all i knew is that my dad depended on in this small town he would show up for every practice and every game that was my connection to him yeah wow and so i knew that if i seen him that maybe there was some real to my life right there was some there was a different reality yeah he was my tree he was the only reality i had yeah. It's weird to say, but like I knew that no matter what was going on, regardless if that night I was going to get raped or if that night was me sleeping with six or seven men or if that night I'm going to use too much dope, right? Like whatever that is that like I got to see him. Yeah. I got to see him. Sooner or later that addiction got so powerful, right? Like I stopped seeing him all the time, right? But like I knew and I, and obviously high school runs out, right? And I didn't make the cut for being scouted by the end of my high school years. But not only going into those abortion clinics, I I became a teen mom to an older man because I normalized being with these people. And, um, and I buried her. You buried your daughter? My first daughter, yeah. Uh, yeah, I buried her by, by the time she would have almost been three. So I was a teen mom full of trauma, addiction, what, what abusive yeah. boy, abusive relationship beyond abuse, right? Like beyond uh, that. And I, the only thing that probably saved me from that relationship is that my drug was more powerful. I decided that I needed to go chase my drug than stay at home and be abused. Mm. And so I have a lot of respect for addiction sometimes for those types of things, right? Mm. Um, and um, I ran with her. I tried. I tried to run from him. And uh, during my addiction, um, someone I can I couldn't. My dad had to come. He had some. I had to. I was running down the road. Someone picked me up. I was barefoot, naked, with her in my hands, running from another predator. And uh, I finally called my dad, and I haven't seen him for like a year. And he drove like eight hours to come pick me up. And was so disappointed, right? That finally hit yeah. me, that story came out, and uh, they tried to get me better. I tried to come off all those substances that I was being fed by this predator for probably about six month period, and by that time, someone let her go to his hands. And the truth is, is I got a flight for life call that she didn't make it. <sighs> Thirty days later, I don't know what happened in that home. You don't know what happened. She did. She. I mean, there's a lot of speculation. Mm-hmm. They tried to blame me and say that I was an addict mom that couldn't take the negligence and put her in an unsafe home, which it's her father's, right? But at this point, um, there was so many abuse charges from domestic violence from me and him that it was considered an unsafe home. But I don't, I don't know if we'll ever know the truth. No. Wow. But burying a, your first child as yeah. a teen, 
Again. But well, because I'm on the run, I already yeah. have criminal charges. I'm not supposed to be using. They found out I'm using, right? So yeah. I'm in prison again. So they think that's the safest place for you. Uh, well, at I think this it's point, a I don't know. It became a, my it became my only father figure. Well, it's a punishment mentality, and that's right. what we've talked about a lot on this show. Is that you know punishment doesn't create positive change. No. So you were telling me off air at some point you did 10 years in prison. Off and on, yeah. Maybe a couple of times here and there. That was well, it. And this was all in Colorado. All in Colorado. What brought you to Utah? My brother. My brother was in the military. He did, I think, I have maybe about, he actually graduated high school a year early to go into military. He wanted out of this small little town. Yeah. Right? And one of the ways out is Job Corps. Or the military, or the military basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, believe it or not, back then, right? And so um, I think he did about eight, nine years in the military um, before he got out and lived in, he came to Salt Lake City with his wife at the time. And I think he was trying to start a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got, I actually expired my number. Um, and I remember clearly one of the conversations, they, they can't hold you past midnight when you expire your numbers. So that means that you've done your time and your parole. Okay. Right? I didn't know so what that meant. Expire, I expired my number and they can't hold you past midnight, right? Like 1201, like you have to be have released. To, yeah. Okay. Like you're no longer warded to the state, right? Mm-hmm. As an inmate or as whatever it is. And um, my mom picked me up, which is interesting that like I ended up at a bar at 1205. I, I never was a drinker, which is so weird. Like I've I've maybe have been fully blown out drunk five times in my entire life. Ever oh, that ever. never was a big nope, thing for you. I was a full blown street addict, full blown heroin, meth, crank, crack cocaine. No, I've never taken a synthetic drug. I've never done like oxys and none of that. Never oh, ever. That. Okay. Not even in recovery. I've never even gotten a prescription for it. Huh. Um. Uh, so I know I still kind of hold on to that <laughs> junky pride. <laughs> I don't know if that, that came out kind of junky pride-ish. No, I, I, it's okay. <laughs> that, that's I mean, okay. I, here's to the honesty. Like uh, all that you've been through, um, you're still upbeat. You move out to Utah and, uh, what was your thought process coming to Utah? Well, you, wherever you run, there you are. That's the truth. What's weird is I drove back and forth home because I'm like what you said at the very beginning of this. I, I'm okay using a loan. I'm, uh-huh. a, I'm really good at using a loan, actually. Right. Uh-huh. And I would drive back forth home to people I knew and bring me back my own little methamphetamine or my own little supply. Well, and or at this time, because you, I started using I turned into a full blown heroin addict in prison. Never touched it before ever in my life until I got to prison. No. Why is and that? I went, that was the most accessible? Yes. Or and was it the most that, bang for your buck? Well, that and who wants to be up, sprouted out in prison. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Right. I'd rather be down. But, and going in at a really young age, like I, I tell it in my story or my book is that, you know, I got raped by the first guard and you become trafficked by a badge in there too. Right. Mm. Like if you go in there so young, you're definitely going to be targeted by guards. Like, wow. you have a isn't lot that, to prove. Isn't that so sad? Oh, like, it happens so there's much. No it's safety. heartbreaking. And yeah. there's no safety, and they have so much power, because if you report them, they can pull your parole date. They can do They all can sorts get of you things. charged in there. They can set you up. Who's going to believe an inmate that has a rap record, right? Like, so, um, 
so I would come back and forth with my and use. I didn't know I didn't know a lot of users here, but as soon as that opens, like once you start looking for it, like right, I found out there there was a strip club here, and I was like, oh, I'll find a predator there. I'll go sit by the old dude on the. You know, ICU unit right there. I'll go talk so to him. you were searching for predators. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I was searching for my, people that Hell I know yeah. that use, that I can be normalized around, especially in Utah because I didn't know anybody. And so my life got pretty destructive in this city. I started, you know, selling myself, curbside selling, prostitution, whatever that is, um, to survive that. And then I get arrested one more time. I get arrested one more you know, time. Probably in, about a year, probably about a year and a half. Were your here. intentions different when you came to Utah? Like, oh yeah, my brother. I there was there was I was offered everything. My brother owned his own business. I had my own house. Our, I could rent the whole basement to my my brother. Like my brother loved me, right? I had um, yeah. I so totally, your intention was, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this clean. I'm gonna work. I'm gonna have. a I thought different I was, life. but I still haven't had any. Treatment or resources. trauma informed no, care. No, I don't or, think I don't think you're at set this up point for in your addiction. Nobody's ever stopped you and said, "Hey, would you like some help?" Yeah, or what happened to you? Nobody asked me. Not one person. Everybody thought something was wrong with me. That's the truth. And I I looked crazy. I I acted crazy, but who doesn't in those situations? Like you don't in. But that was the first time ever being arrested, and I told you guys this earlier, going in front of a judge, and he said, I'm sentencing you to treatment. And I said, no, you're not. Send me to prison. And he goes, no, I'm sending you to treatment. And I'm Why like, did you want to go to prison? Because I know how to be in prison. I know how to be an inmate. I know how to get my supply. I know how to have sex. I know how to link up with my people. I know how to survive in that environment. I've been doing it my entire life. So, so recovery was unknown. No, unknown. So I he won. Well, he's a judge. <laughs> yeah. That's how that works. They, they he won to. the battle. He won yeah. the sentencing, if you want to know. Yeah. And um, You mean you weren't able to talk a judge out of it, huh? Nope. <laughs> and so, I'm going to tell you, I so there there is a couple of things that happened before that actual recovery hit. He tried to send me to drug court. They let me out because it's outpatient, basically. Right, I right. went on the run, right? Sure. And I ended up back in the cycle and, and then went back to jail. And then he said, well, now we need to up your level of care, right? And he's like, I'm going to put you – I think at the time in Davis County it was RSAT. There's an RSAT program in the jail where mm-hmm. there was treatment in the jail. So he said, I'm going to put you in there. As soon as they release so, me, I relapse and do what – and I don't call it a relapse because I don't really think I was ready for recovery at the time. Well, I was right? going to say, did you want treatment? Right. I mean, Right, and so like probably was... a few months later, the last time I used – was that I'll never forget the last time I used. Tell I will never it. forget. I don't, I, coming off, I was like 80 pounds. I was malnutritioned. I weighed, I, my skin tone was like greenish because I was so malnutritioned, so gone, really couldn't even remember my name. Um, and withdrawing in a jail, like I literally like, bell movements on myself scratching the pain the aches like even i think even a couple of the weber county guards were like i think we should release her she's like a liability right at this point right like i looked like you were gonna die die. like Yeah. yeah. yeah um screaming um Restless, like I, I'll never forget that because I'm going to tell you that, that right there will probably keep me in recovery 
Because it's easier to stay here than to get here. And we've had so many people who've come on this podcast and who said they'd welcome death because they feared detox. Oh. They're like, like bring on the death because death, we know there's going to be an end point. But uh, withdrawals and detox, no. And it's weird because I do outreach now and we'll get there. But like, it's so, I have that conversation now with people, right? Where I'm like, you're not going to die from withdrawing. You're going to die from using. Yeah. But out there in the middle of that, it doesn't feel like that. Yeah. Like I, people will choose. I'd rather die than to stop using. And people do. There's a lot of people that die that shouldn't die. Like, right? Like uh, they're just trying to get high. They're trying to cope. And we have, I mean, our overdose rate and people dying from all of all sides of addiction, mm-hmm. right? Drunk drivers, overdoses, of under the influence of doing something stupid. If you're a gang member or you're trying to prove yourself, like all those things, like the death that comes from having something in your body is is awful. So you find yourself sitting in a court ordered rehab. Yeah, all female one. Which is for, like nowadays they're co-ed, and I I don't agree with it, but that's just my opinion. But I'm grateful I went to an all female. Uh, treatment center. Um, and how does that go? Because everything else you had wanted, but now you're here forced and... I'm here. I, I, it probably, I met probably the most incredible PhD therapist in my life. He didn't consider me an experiment. People, I will not do, reco- I will not do therapy because of that. I can still be an experiment because people like, they'll hear your story and they think, oh my God. Right. And then they want to start to fix you. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want to fix me. He just wanted to listen to me. And, and nobody and had it, listened to you because you had never said anything because you said silence was your first trafficker. Yeah. And that man, I'll, I'll ever, I will forever be indebted. Like he is, like I will, I, even till this day, I will show up somewhere, even on his lunch break where he works somewhere and say, I love you. Thank you. Because he was the first. And um, the first one that started to let me make choices. Like, they would tell me, hey, if you don't want to be here, this isn't locked. You can go anywhere you want. You can leave. Like, my my counselor would be, she was pretty ruthless. She was like, yo, check it out. I don't get paid to babysit you. I get paid to help you. <laughs> Addiction counselors are Yeah, a rough like, she's bunch, like, right? hey, you're oh, my not. Yeah. said the same thing to me. Yeah, he's like, you're not. I'm not going to sit here and worry all the time. You know, you're being rude or you're trying to look for a way out. You want to get kicked out. You don't have to get kicked out. I needed that. I needed tough love at the time. My therapist right. told me in uh, our first meeting, he goes, if you're going to lie to me for an hour and a half, don't. Yeah. I got other things to do. Uh, and two, I don't want your sobriety worse than you do. So if- well, that's it right there. I mean, you you have to. It is such uh, a huge challenge to turn your life around and and not just get sober, but change all those mentalities. You know, the criminal mentality, the addict mentality. You have to want it more than anybody else. And so, I think that it makes sense that the therapists and the counselors are like, "Listen, we're here for you, and we'll do everything we can for you. But if you don't want to be here, you don't have to be here." Yeah. And that forces you into that forced choice. Like, well, what am I going to do? Stay or go? Oh, yeah. I was, and I was beat down by that time. Right. I'm 29. My whole life has been, I've, I don't think I've had one day in, without a substance or something traumatic happening in my life since I was like 10 or 11. Right. And even mm-hmm. earlier than that. Right. Like, and so I, I think I was just beat. Sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah, I think I was beat. I, I was beat. And so when they gave me consent, and choice 
and listen to me, I get, I was like, well, maybe I should stay for like a couple more days, <laughs> you know? And yeah. then it, maybe I should stay for a couple more days. And like, and that's how I looked at it. And that's why I was telling you guys, like my first year in recovery was not like the unicorns. Like it was literally like every day I told myself, Hey, guess what? Are you going to stay here? Are you going to go put a needle in your arm? Are you going to stay here? And I would, every day I'd be like, Hey, stay. I would look at myself in the mirror and ask myself that every day. What are you going to do? And I, and, and I'm grateful for the treatment center I went to because they did offer peers coming in, regardless if that was a 12-step program or different peers coming in to share their story, share what they went through, mm-hmm. got to hear what they've been and that they're here and that their life looks way better. Or um, I got to go to meetings. They took us to listen, you know, and I got to see people actually doing this, even though I was kind of I'm like, ah. I don't know if they're really telling the truth, right? Or <laughs> like, are they really nine years yeah, clean yeah, yeah. in sobriety? I don't believe it. But like, it started to like see them every week too. Well, Consistently, sounds, they were showing up. It sounds like, and and we've talked about this before. You saw a little hope, and I don't. I, I mean, I'm going to hazard a guess here, but I don't think you saw a lot of hope in the early years of your life. Oh no! So yeah, something. There was a spark, right? And I kept on going. Like I, and some of the peers that I met that did have some sobriety, like they loved me until I couldn't love myself. I had nobody else out here. I didn't know anybody. I mean, my brother was here. And by that time, he's building his family. And he's, you know, he's like, my sister's is a dope fiend addict, right? Like who knows if she's going to stay this time, right? And so um, I started to build a community around me, people. And that was uh that was incredible. Like, I haven't had that. And I started my job, like, the person I worked for, like, started to love me as a person. And, like, yeah, I would show up every day, never missed a day. Like, whatever that tr- trigger was to, like, I this might be worth exploring because I don't know if I'm going to make it again. I'm going to, like, I might just end my life at this point. Do you think point. that was the first time that you found real value in the person that you were instead of what you could do for someone? Absolutely. Yeah. And so, I, like I said, I just haven't, I mean, I've looked, I've found, I've been looking, but I haven't found reason to pick up and that I'm going over 16 years. So it's not like I haven't looked. There's some things <laughs> in my life where I'm like, huh? well, if tragic. You, yeah. Family travel. I've had mind, that. You talked about 10 years being sober and had a suicide attempt. Yeah, I will. This is this will be a good segue because that's how Soap to Hope started. Is this mental breakdown? Is um, obviously I'm sharing that shared this piece of the story because now it's told. But at ten years, it was not told. I never shared any of the sexual violence towards me. So you'd been sober ten years before you shared that. Any of it, right? I I did a lot of grief counts. Like so, when I was in treatment, I did a lot of grief counseling. Losing my kid, losing my dad. Losing countless friends, losing myself, losing my identity, but I never talked about that stuff, right? I was still locked up. Never talked yeah. about the trafficking, the no, sexual never. assault, I, the rapes. And I wouldn't. I, all I would, I took uh, so much pride in addiction. I was like, I was just an addict. And I still held on to, was that really it? Like, I really still thought for a long time it was just my addiction. This is an exchange. I actually was a drug dealer. I wasn't a, tra- a victim. Like, actually, that's what, and so I really didn't own that. And really, I, 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 I think pieces of your story need to come out when they need to. Well, we've said that before and where I go, I'm being as honest as I can be right now. Right. 
right now because whether it, it's, it's you or me or whatever, this is as honest as I can be right now. And I, I needed to work on my daughter's death more than anything else because I was tired of honoring her with a needle in my arm. Like I had the perfect excuse to use every day, mm. like every day. You couldn't tell me different. I mean, I could convince therapists to say, yeah, I understand why you used every day, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like literally I had, and I was so shameful for that, that like I am grateful at the time of my early recovery. That's what I chose to work on was her death and well, to honor sense. her differently. That makes sense that that so, but there was a lot first, of stuff yeah. that didn't get worked on. Sure. 10, 10 years clean, kind of going through a situation. I've been in a relationship for 10 years, kind of really not wanting to be there, not understanding what's going on sexually, like I'm acting out sexually. I'm kind of like, honestly, I'm cheating. I'm Like weird stuff's going on. And I have a great life and my relationship, like he's a good man, right? I didn't know what was going on where I was kind of spiraling out. And I remember clearly... I walked into a gas station and there's a this old biker white dude walks in the, in there smelling like diesel mechanic, BO and cocaine. Like literally. Mm. And and I call it the smell of trauma and I wrote it. It's the first story in there. It's the smell of trauma. That was your trigger, huh? And I couldn't walk. I got to my car and I couldn't even start my damn car. It was the smell of that smell mm -hmm. triggered all of that. Like I barely made it home and I stayed in a fetal position for like four days, like flashback after flashback being on this property and what was really going, seeing your trauma as a third person mm. from that trigger trauma response. Yeah. I didn't, I, I didn't wow. think I was going to make it. I was like, what else? God, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Like, this is the more to my story that you're going to tell me now. Like, I've done everything you've asked to stay here. <laughs> I've given, you know, I've given up time, energy, steps. I've been to every meeting, doing every service project. I've sponsored women. I've let people sponsor me. I've done all, like, I was, I was angry. I was angry. And, well, you wanted to keep that stuff locked away because that's what you'd always done with Yeah, it. and I... Called my ex at the time because I obviously ruined that relationship. And um, I handed him over $10,000 and asked him. I, I did have another daughter. At the time that she came back into my life in recovery, she was seven. And she's never left. So I've raised her now for 16 years. Um, I got her my first year and back in recovery. Her dad somehow or another asked me to come pick her up. Went and picked her up. And he's never wanted her back. And, mm -hmm. and then like I'm like, dope. I get to raise this little thing. Hopefully better than I raised, got raised, right? Um, but I asked him, I said, hey, here's $10,000. I've been saving it. Will you take care of him? I'll sign over her to you because that's the only person she knew for 10 years. And I, I'm done. I'm done doing this recovery thing. I'm doing done doing the hope thing. I'm done doing faith thing. I'm done looking at myself. I'm done finding out new things about myself that I just don't know if I can swallow anymore, really. And yeah, I had it all set up. I was like, that's it. I think I'm going to go hurt the guy that hurt me, right? Like I had this like whole revenge mentality yeah, going yeah. on and then I'm going to blow my brains out and I'm going to be done. And... Thank God I didn't. What Thank, stopped you? Uh, 
my best friend. I went to go, I was driving down the road. He drove all the way from Logan. He was my best friend in recovery. He drove, I was on the road back home because, you know, all my, all the people I, I had back on my to, hit list. Yeah, for Col- Colorado. <laughs> yeah, everybody all, I had you, on my step eight. You had a hit, hit list. Yeah. <laughs> lipstick list. Yeah, lipstick list. And he drove all the way there and found me on I-15, pulled me over and took me to the monastery for like five hours in Ogden. Oh, wow. And I sat up there. What a good friend. Yeah. And I, I was, I was like, and I moved to Salt Lake on my own. And obviously at this time, my kid's older, right? She's 17 by the time this is happening. When it happened, she chose to move out, do her own thing and move in with her boyfriend. And she needed a family and I wasn't providing any of it because I was losing my mind, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't know what was happening with this mental breakdown, with this trauma response. I I didn't even, I couldn't even put sentences together. Mm-hmm. I was mumbling all over well, that's again. That's how powerful trauma can yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah. I was mumbling all over again. That was the thing my dad tried to put me in speech therapy because I mumbled when he got me back and he was like, something's wrong You're with her. You're regressing. Yeah. And I did not know times. what was happening. Yeah. And um, I got to finally put a word to it. I started to research what this really was. And there's this word that came up that exploitation, trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um sexual assault, molestation, right? What are all these words, right? There, there was something to this that, that happened to other people and I thought it was only me. So this was my only dirty secret, right? And I just started actually listening to Survivor podcast and listening to other people's story and trying to identify and trying to put a new narrative to it as a survivor instead of a victim, obviously. And uh, went to Thailand to do a lot of energy healing work mm-hmm. and just started to rebuild. But that's where Soap to Hope came from is that I am going to go do street outreach at night and knock on hotel doors or go into high risk. I impacted areas and just ask people what happened to them. Wow. So, so tell, tell us more about that. So what's the soap part? We hand out hygiene. You hand out hygiene kits? Yeah, we hand people. out hy- basic hygiene kits. And we put a handwritten note in every one of those hygiene kits. And I have incredible volunteers that make those because I used to make them myself, but that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But we, it started off with hygiene. We were like, yeah. I'm just walking around. I'm going to walk around Why State Street. I'm going to walk around this area. I'm going to walk in hotels. Somebody, and I'm going to just hand out hygiene. Why did you think of hygiene? Tell me why. Because I didn't have basic hygiene yeah. as a child. And so I feel like... That was the door to it just... It was the door opener. Yeah, and... Because um, from what I heard, and maybe I'm wrong in this, is that that was your way in, but you were really there to find out... What happened to him? Yeah. Listen to him. Some, nobody asked you that over 20 years of addiction. Nobody said, hey, what happened to you? Yeah, and nobody ever knocked on the other door of a hotel room that I was either trying to hit a vein trying to sell myself for sex or being sold for sex and just nodded and said, hey, I'm an outreach lady. This morning, if you need hygiene, condoms, any resources, uh, a human that actually is going into an area that's probably not the best area for just anybody and saying, hey, I love you. Hey, if you're not, if you don't want to open the door, just know that you're left. We're out here for the next hour in the parking lot. If you want to come down here, there's no judgment. No, we have safe sex kits. We have harm reduction supplies. We have wound care. We maybe have some used closed items. Maybe we have some water. If you choose to open that door and come down, know that you're going to be loved. 
nobody's are people ask, suspicious do they no, think maybe absolutely you're, no, no. we okay. have made like we have consistently have not on probably the same 14 to 16 hotels doors for five years and what is we don't res- miss a Tuesday. We have never missed a Tuesday in wow. five years. That's impressive. We now have grown to like Monday location, Wednesday mobile, Thursday location, and a Saturday location because we obviously it's been five years. You're hoping to climb the mountain or you, you might as well just get off the pot, right? But um, we we got to transition to be an approved harm reduction program. So we get to mm. do syringe exchange. Safe, we get to dispose and pick up syringes in areas or even go in and show hotels and housekeepers like hey some of these hotels like don't go picking up or grabbing stuff because some of these areas are high risk that they might have stuck a needle underneath the mattress or they might be in the trash can we start we do a lot of awareness that and we bring a lot of awareness about exploitation pimping trafficking in those areas and you'd be surprised how many women women out there were just like that's not happening to me that's my boyfriend that's my that's my street dad. What are you talking about? I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. I know. Yeah. Hey, let me tell you a little bit about my story. Are Same the thing. women receptive to you? Oh yeah, we. Yeah, we we probably obviously it's winter months and people are all over and people opt to go into jail around this time, right? Too or this and that, but uh, we probably meet on the average anywhere from 700 to 900 people a month. Wow. And it's just two of us, and we're really small, well-funded. We have a lot of people don't want to support harm reduction in the state of Utah, and a lot of people uh, don't want to believe trafficking or exploitation is happening in the state of Utah. It's a huge problem everywhere, but it is a problem in the state of Utah. Yes. And I am so happy to hear that you're involved in harm reduction. Uh, We've got a eliminate this punishment response to people that are uh, struggling with addiction. Oh, that is, yeah. The punishment doesn't work, but treatment and love and harm reduction and connection. does. Connection. Yeah. It's like, and it's like taking, I mean, the truth is, is that there's, like, it takes about seven years for a victim of domestic violence to leave that relationship, right? Like, mm-hmm, it, it mm-hmm. countless times at the hospital, broken arms, oh. countless times, you know, control or something police reports and it's like that out there too like with addiction or these severe trauma they all go together yeah they it takes a while so we consistently go in those areas um and we believe in consistency everybody asks us how come you haven't grown here gone there and i'm like what i do right now is built everybody knows where i am monday everybody knows where i am tuesday everybody knows where i am wednesday Every, and I know what I can afford with my budget, right? Like I have, and and I'm not going to cause harm by trying to think I'm more or I'm have to be more, right? Um, I I I love people who use drugs. I love people that are in the high risk sex trade. I love people that are chronically homeless, untreated mental health. All these people that we meet with, we love them, right? And we we want to meet them. And not leave them there, but it takes a while to for them to build trust yeah, with us, absolutely. and it takes a while for them to say, "Hey, I need to get. I actually have an untreated STD. Hey, I think I might be pregnant, or hey, I can't stop using, or hey, I have no insurance. I don't even know where I would go to get insurance. I have never. I, this has been my entire life. I lived in hotels with my mom, and now she's twenty three and living in hotels. Right? Like she, yeah. like generational." Oh, or yeah, familiar sure. trafficking too, like Absolutely. you know what I mean. Um, and a lot of that low end pimping, but we just consistently stay there, and we now have through 
who we are and being a voice. Like we get to work with incredible other organizations, incredible treatment programs that support our community. That's like, yes, this person needs to come in on mat. This person needs to be on Suboxone at least for a little while. They, they, they've been out there for 20 years shooting yeah, up wow. dope. Like they cannot just cold turkey it. Right. Like, you know, right. like, or this person has severe trauma we could just share a little bit of their story. Hey, the, the, her treatment plan needs to be different. Mm-hmm. It's not about the substance. It's not one size fits all. When yes, it comes and to so recovery. we get to be that voice for them. And Advocate. I said, I send a lot of our survivors or that are fleeing the life, even high risk sex trade, out of state because we have no level one care for traffic victims in the state of Utah. John is tr- getting there. Uh, yeah, I'm going to ask you a loaded question. Uh, I get the question all the time. Um, what do you get out of doing this work? Uh, you know, people go, why would you do this? There's got to be something in it for you. Yeah. It's my story matters now. And I love that. Yeah, my story matters now. For a long time, I was like, I'm never sharing that story. That is not like, it almost destroyed me. I was going to say, you tried really hard to not even accept your own story. Yeah, I didn't. Share yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So so why yeah. is sharing your story important to you now? Because um, I felt so alone. I totally felt like I, I, I had, that's so ridiculous to say now because now I've met hundreds and thousands of incredible I've addicts. addicts that are in recovery, much less survivors of trafficking and domestic violence and abuse and parents that are grieving their kid that they've lost, even regardless if it was a car wreck or died of birth. Like I've met countless people that have my story. Yeah. And then I'm not alone anymore. And so it matters more that I hope that I make someone else not feel well, I got to tell you, you are such <laughs> a bright ju- light. A sociopath. No, I, I, I'm in love with you. I think everything you're doing is wonderful. And uh, the, your story is so heartbreaking. But you say it so matter of fact and so jovial i mean that, that that's what i mean it, it's positive energy that's what i'm getting yes i've done a lot of healing i i am a person that uh creates healing on purpose and because uh, my life depends on it and i have too much i what i've gained here by staying in that in the middle of this my you know my 23 year old she just had my first granddaughter i never thought i would be part of a baby's life ever again in my life both of those two got taken from me, right? One, obviously, passed, murdered, whatever. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, her, because I went to prison, and I, she was, Kayla was born a chemically dependent. Um, to have a relationship with my 23-year-old and watch her become a mom and my womb trauma come up, right? Where I was like, mm-hmm. oh, mm-hmm. my God, what are we going to do? I can't, like, she's going to lose it. Something traumatic's going to happen. Like, totally projected all my stuff on her. And her still, me giving her my little sassy voice, she's like, no, I'm having this kid. This isn't about you. This is about my life. Mm-hmm. And to be in that room when the birth and now like that little girl, like it's healing all over for me. Yeah. Like, and I'm, I get to provide, like I get to like, dude, if I want to spend 500 bucks on my grandkid, buying her cool Nikes or yeah. <laughs> van, like I never got that. Right. Like I stole that stuff to just be cool. Right. And, um, like whatever it is, like I, I get all these cool things that come back. I, I just never thought That's would amazing. happen. Recovery yeah. is wonderful. It's yeah. If somebody's listening and they want to help and donate to Soap to Hope, can they? Yeah. How do we they- need people to like we're running off a prayer and a shoestring. Uh 
anybody. So you can get on Soap to Hope's website. We do have a donate button, and it's associated with our accounts, and everything is five hundred one c, and it's a part of our PayPal business account. Nonprofit. I don't know what they are, but you can get on uh, Soap to Hope UT. Dot com, uh-uh. and it's to the number two. Yeah, not, and um, we have a Facebook page that we love people to follow. We do service projects. We have ways people can donate old used items, hygiene, travel size hygiene. Like it's not always about the dollar bill. You know, if you want to write handwritten notes with your family as a family fun oh, night, that would be a great idea. Like I, those notes are the most important thing that goes out there. Do we need money? Do we fly when I'm flying to, I've flown two. I'm getting ready to fly two survivors out of state this week. Right. Have I worked five jobs to keep soap to hope alive? Absolutely. I even worked the door at a nightclub. Really? It's just like you were talking about earlier. Yeah. My friend owned it. He knew I was the only person that he knew that wasn't going to steal the money, would know when people are all get him out or yeah. trying to sell drugs in his club. Worked the door trying to supply Soap to Hope. So, because it was my passion, right? Now we've been able to secure, secure a little bit more donors and people involved, which is amazing. I work a full time job. Like, I have my own full time job plus run Soap to Hope, and it's night. We believe that we should bridge the gap at night. And especially a lot of our, you know, women that are being, they come out more at night. There's a whole sure. other belly of beast that comes. There's, you know. Living that dual life. Yeah. So we, we try to do night and bridge that gap and connect them to resources. We want to be a part of the village. We don't want to be the village. So we, it. we offer these certain things, harm reduction, street outreach, and victim advocacy. Otherwise, we're, we're transporting, setting up appointments, digital equity, giving them phones, getting them to clinics for testing, HIV. We take them to those places because then that builds a village around that person because you never know what happens when they get tested, right? Right. Hey. They need you, some support. Hey, you're positive for this. And that might be like, hey, um, I, need, yeah. I need out. This yeah. is my life. It's, so it's been really cool to build. Um, is Utah still behind on the curve of like – saying, uh, like, we, I have to send a lot of girls out of state that are actually just trauma-informed um, services because a lot of people here is, like, the same old saying. Like, if you wouldn't have pissed off your husband, you wouldn't have got hit yeah. last night. It's like saying, if you weren't in a full-blown addict, you wouldn't have got trafficked. That's not true. Right. Absolutely not true. That is not true. And so a lot of the resources here are you have to identify that you have an SUD or a mental health and that you're going to go to treatment for this cognitive thing and never work on this piece, you know. So we try to find them a lot of healing programs for survivors. Not that those don't work, but we need to have more we, we options. Need, more options is always the best. Yes, way to more go. options. And I, there is some involvement. There's some amazing people right now that are. I don't like saying anti anything. I hate, I don't really say anti trafficking, anti this, anti this. I, I just feel like that's just another like negative connotation. There's a lot of people, uh, fighting for survivors, organizations for survivors. There's, you know, programs that are starting to shift, taking that in, having different modules, I guess, for people mm-hmm. that have severe trauma that are coming out of these severe trauma places. Just different, you know, I mean, the movement is, and the survivor movement is, like, survivors are at the table now. Yeah, Yeah. and you're creating or being part of that community. Right, there's there's some incredible stuff Utah's doing, too. Yep. Dr. Mountain, what do you think about this podcast? (laughs) I'm having a blast. (laughs) Yeah. No, I am. I'm loving it. Um, 
my takeaway, I think, is you mentioned several times, and I could just tell what it meant to you that you said it a few different times. No one ever asked me what happened to me. And that's a powerful thing, isn't it? When somebody does ask you sincerely, what happened to you? What's going on? Somebody who really wants to listen. And I can tell that's meant a lot in your life. And now you're the voice asking other people what happened to them. And I just think that's beautiful. And that's real love. And I appreciate that you're out there doing that. And I appreciate your vulnerability uh, to come on here and tell your story. Uh, and the ownership of it and what you're doing with it and how you're giving back to the community. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're an amazing person, and I hope we have you back on the podcast because you are an amazing light. Uh, yeah, in and such a dark, we need dark to world. highlight as much as we can these sorts of organizations that are doing good work like so this. If you Not get- a small little boots on the ground. Yeah, yeah like we're, we're, I tell people, yeah. So if you get a chance, check out our uh, Facebook or our website, Soap to Hope. That's S-O-A-P, the number two, hope. Uh, <laughs> and you can donate there. You can get together as a family and write thank you letters. I think that's a great idea. Or you can read her story, which is The Dark Side of the Moon Child, Memoir, Writings, Poetry, Lost in Silence by January Riggin. Where can people find that book? That one, I'm super independent. I published it myself. Uh, You would have to email me or on my Instagram is ManicGypsy01. I I think for every thousand dollars donated to soap to hope you, they could get a book yep yeah i, and, <laughs> I yeah. just threw that that may not be actually the case because i just should. made that yeah up. but you can get on like even my i have my all the setup on my ig account because it is mine yeah. i tried to do something for me because i do a lot like soap to hope takes me a lot outside of myself yeah. recovery you're giving yourself a lot out or my you know the but this job. was a project for you i i, I work in the cannabis industry and um, and so I, a lot of it, and I was like, "This is gonna be mine." Yeah, good. This is my, I'm gonna end this silence. Oh. I'm done being silent. And so a lot of the stuff I did talk about is in here, and a lot of stuff. I, I the only thing that nobody could take from me my entire life was a pen and a paper. Which is crazy because I can imagine you ever being silent. Oh, now because I'm a little sass. <laughs> I love you with all my heart. Oh. Thank you for stopping by. Project Recovery, in case you forgot, is what, Dr. Matt? It's a KSL podcast, Casey. I love her. Me too. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. 
Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.